Let's pray. Our Lord, we uh, stand before you this morning. We gather in front of you this morning, confessing that we need to hear from you. And we're really grateful that you love to speak to us and that you have done so even through your word. We pray and we ask that you would help us to hear and in hearing that we would believe and that in believing that we would live according to your word. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. And so I pray that your truth would be louder to us than all the opinions that run through our mind, all the opinions that run through this world. We pray that that would be, your word would be what makes us more like Jesus and makes us live like him as well. We trust you can do that. And we're asking that you would. Uh, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I, I don't know if you know this, but Pastor Sibby and I are really good friends. We're really good friends. He's one of the closest friends that I have in my life. We obviously spend a lot of time together uh, throughout the course of the week. We share a lot of the same interests, right? We like the same music. Uh, we watch the same sports. We enjoy the same foods. But if there's one thing that really gets on my nerves about Pastor Sibby, if I can just vent for a second, <laughs> it's this. It's his choice in movies. Let me just tell you, can I just warn you, never watch a movie that Pastor Sibby recommends to you. Don't do it right? Uh, if he says something like, hey, you want to come over tonight and watch a movie? Just say no. Say that you're busy. Say you're not allowed to watch movies. Whatever it takes, <laughs> just don't do it. Trust me. Now, here's why, right? Because for some reason, Sibby loves movies that have no closure. He just loves movies that have no closure. It, you know, he loves movies that when you reach the end, you're just like, wait, what? Like, what just happened? This, the movie's done? What, what's going on here, right? And I have fallen for it like a hundred times, over and over again. I mean, we'll spend two hours watching a movie together, and I'll be really invested into the characters, I'm really into the plot, and then all of a sudden, there's like a blank screen. Or the credits start rolling, and I'm just like, what in the world just happened? How is this movie done by now? But it is. There's no closure, and Sibby loves it. You see, I'm more of like a, a full house kind of guy, right? There's like some tension in the beginning, but then everything, you know, wraps really neatly towards the end. There's a lot of resolution. That's sort of the story that I like, but not Sibby. He loves loose ends. He loves loose ends. So why do I bring this up? Because after studying Acts together for over a year now, we started back in January of last year. After studying Acts together, we have finally reached the end. This is the last Sunday of it. And when we're looking at these last several verses that we're reading together, and when we read this passage, uh, at first glance, it can really feel like a really abrupt ending. It, it feels like there is no closure to this book. I mean, you get to verse 31, the last verse in this book, and you want to be like, wait, what? Like, what just happened? It's over? How could that be? And that's because if you've been with us for the last several Sundays, you know that we've been going from chapter to chapter, following Paul on this crazy journey to get to Rome. He's been going to Rome, getting ready to stand before Caesar. That's what he's been doing. And what a crazy journey it's been. Even before being able to stand before trial uh, before Caesar, he's been on many other trials, right? So he stood before the governor Felix, and then he went and stood before governor Festus. Then he went and stood before King Agrippa. And then he gets on a boat, and he goes on this journey, and it's a crazy journey because there's a lot of uh, bad weather and storms, and so they're being rocked about all over the place. And then he gets shipwrecked, remember? He gets shipwrecked onto an island of Malta, and then he gets bitten by a snake, and then he gets called a god, and then he gets called a murderer. There's all sorts of things that happen, and then we get to verse 30 and 31, 
and it says that Paul finally gets to Rome, and all that it says is basically that he rents an Airbnb for two years, he preaches the gospel, and by the way, he's on house arrest, the end. And you want to be like, what? Like, wait, what just happened? How is this the end of the book? How does that work? You, you know, the, the, the credits start to roll, and you're just left with a thousand questions. A thousand questions like, wait, so did he ever get a chance to stand before Caesar? Right? What happened? Or did he die? What happened to him after those two years? Is he still living? Where is he? Did he move somewhere else? What's going on? But all we get is silence. And you can't help but feel like, man, like, did Sibby write Acts? Like, what is going on here? <laughs> what exactly is happening? Because it feels like there's no closure to this book. Right? Sorry. <laughs> now, here's the thing. At first glance, it really does feel very abrupt. But here's what I've understood in just trying to study this book over the past week. You see, in order for us to make sense of the end of the book of Acts, we actually have to go back to the beginning of the book. For us to make sense of the end of the book of Acts, we have to re- uh, go back to the beginning, because when we do, we actually remember something really important about this book. In fact, listen to what Dr. Luke says. He's the author of this book. He says this in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, the first verse. He says this. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. Now, if you remember, right, the book of Acts is basically the second book that Luke has written. The first one was the Gospel of Luke. This is the second book. And so what he's saying here in this verse, uh, he's saying, Luke's saying, in my first book, that's the Gospel of Luke, that I was trying to describe that all that Jesus began to do here on earth until he ascended into heaven. That was the purpose of the Gospel of Luke, right? Well, then, if that's true, he's saying, basically, Acts is meant to describe all that Jesus continued to do now that he is in heaven. Does that make sense? Luke is explaining everything that Jesus did until he ascended into heaven, and then Acts is trying to describe everything that Jesus continued to do now that he is in heaven. That's the point. And if that's true, what that means is this, that Acts isn't meant to be a biography on the Apostle Paul. That's not the point. And and the reason why we have no closure on Paul's life is because this book isn't ultimately about Paul. No, instead, there's a a bigger and a greater story being described here. You, You see, the book of Acts was written to show us that Jesus, though he is in heaven, he is continuing to do ministry here on earth. That Jesus, though he is in heaven, he is continuing to do ministry here on earth. That by the Holy Spirit and through the church, Jesus is expanding this gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what's going on. In fact, a few verses later from chapter 1, verse 1, in chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus himself says something like this. He says, hey, listen, once I ascend, this gospel will begin to spread. This gospel will go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That's what he says. And seven mile road, can I just say, after 28 chapters of going through the book of Acts, isn't this exactly what we have seen? I mean, think about it for a second, right? The book of Acts covers basically 30 years. That's what the book of Acts is covering, just 30 years in the world. Consider all that has happened in the course of those 30 years. When we started the book of Acts, there were 120 Christians on the entire planet, and they all met together in the upper room. 
120 Christians. By Acts 28, there are tens of thousands of Christians all over the place. Or when we began Acts, Christianity was basically concentrated into a small city called Jerusalem. That's where Christians were found. By Acts 28, we see the gospel traveling over 2,000 miles, even reaching the great city of Rome. Over the course of these 28 chapters, we have seen the gospel explode, even in the midst of persecution and imprisonment, hypocrisy and false teaching, riots and murders, all sorts of hardships and barriers. And now, 28 chapters later, it's almost like Luke is saying, hey, would you step back for a moment and consider all that has happened within these 28 chapters? Look at all that Jesus has done in these 30 years. We really have seen the gospel go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and on its way to the ends of the earth, just like Jesus said he would. But here's the thing. As we reach the end of this book, while it is absolutely right for us to marvel over the progress of the gospel, you can't help but wonder whether Luke is trying to actually tell us something else as well. That maybe that the reason that this book doesn't have an ending is because this book hasn't ended. That the reason, maybe the reason why this book doesn't have an ending is because this book hasn't ended. Maybe the reason why this book lacks closure is because the story is actually still being written. You see, maybe the book of Acts has come to an end, but the mission of God is still in progress. And that's true. You see, no doubt, when we read these 28 chapters, and even chapter 28, we should marvel at the amazing progress that we have seen considering the gospel in this world. We should do that. It is right for us to do that. But we should also consider that there is so much work left to be done. Friends, if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Christ, I want to encourage you this morning, don't see Acts 28 as simply as the end of the story. Instead, see it as an invitation to enter into the story. Don't see Acts 28 as simply the end of the story. Instead, see it as an invitation to enter into the story. That what Jesus was doing 2,000 years ago by the Holy Spirit and through the church, he continues to do even now. I mean, sure, right? By Acts 28, there are tens of thousands of disciples that were made. But would you consider for a moment that there are still innumerable people that need to hear the gospel. And some of those people live in our city. Some of those people live under your block. Some of those people are living with you in your home. Would you consider there are people that still need to hear the gospel? Or sure, by Acts 28, we have seen the gospel travel thousands of miles. But would you consider that today, there are still thousands of miles that the gospel needs to keep going to, into places like Northeast Philly, or North Hills, or Mumbai, or Africa. And so Seven Mile Road, this morning, as we consider Acts 28, let's not simply read this as the end of the story. Instead, let's see this as an invitation to jump into the story, to be a part of Jesus' ongoing mission on earth. And so to that end, I just want us to consider two really simple thoughts, really simple thoughts that will help us to continue to consider what does it look like for us to be a part of what God is doing through Christ Jesus here on earth. And so we're looking at Acts 28. It's found on page 937. I want to encourage you to pull the Bibles out in front of you. We'll look at this together. Page 937. And so here's the first thought. It's really simple. It says this. 
Continuing God's mission means praying for opportunities to share the gospel. Continuing God's mission means praying for opportunities to share the gospel. So let me just give you a little bit of background of what's going on here. If you take a look at verse 16, it gives us a little clue, okay? This is what verse 16 says. It says, and when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier, with the soldier who guarded him. Now, verse 16 basically tells us this, that Paul finally arrives in Rome, and he's placed on house arrest. Now, it seems like this is like a real minimal security type setup because verse 30, if you look, it says that he rented a house and he was able to live by himself. And it even says that he's allowed to have guests and visitors come and go while he's in jail, right? And, but here's the catch. Verse 16 says that Paul has a soldier guarding him. Well, you see, in Rome during that time, what that meant is that there's literally a person that's handcuffed to Paul 24 hours throughout the day, literally handcuffed to him. And so whether he's eating or he's sleeping, whether he's talking to somebody, no matter what he's doing, there is a soldier by his side. And what happens is every four hours or so, one soldier would come and the other one would go and they would kind of just swap uh, places. Every four hours, there's a new soldier. But basically... Paul was handcuffed to someone around the clock. And it says that was his setup for the, the next two years. Now, when we read verses 17 to 31, it doesn't actually give us many details about what those two years looks like. It kind of concentrates on a few days. But interestingly, while Paul is on house arrest, he writes four more letters, right? And those four letters are really interesting because it's actually found in the Bible. They're often referred to as the prison epistles. The name is fitting, right? The prison epistles are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, right? And we get a chance through those books to kind of get a feel of what is going on in, in Paul's mind during that time and what God is doing. And so we get a picture of what's happening through those prison epistles within those two years that Acts 28 is talking about. And so listen for a second to Colossians chapter 4. And, and you can catch a glimpse of Paul's heart while he's on house arrest. This is what Paul says. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. What's Paul saying here? He's saying basically, this is where God has me for the next two years, Right? I'm confined to this house, I'm handcuffed to a soldier, but I still want to be a part of what Jesus is doing here on earth. And so he makes this simple re uh, request to the church at Colossae. He says this, he, tells, he, said, he says, hey, would you pray? Would you pray that God would open up a door for me to be able to share Jesus with those who need to hear it? I mean, consider again his situation, right? He can't walk through the doors of his house and tell people about Jesus, so he's literally asking, God, would you open up that door and bring people to me, right? Well, when we read the scriptures, we find that God actually repeatedly answers that prayer during those two years. In fact, we see it right off the bat, right? After uh, arriving in Rome and being placed on house arrest, within three days, he's meeting with the local Jewish leaders at his house. Look at verses 21 to 24 of Acts 28. This is what it says. And they, that's the Jewish leaders said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. 
but we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know, not, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater, greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. So what's happening here? You see, Paul invites some of the local Jewish leaders in Rome to come over to his house. And when they arrive, they basically say this. They say, listen, Paul, we don't know actually anything about your life or your current situation or what you're going through right now, but we have heard about this sect, about Christianity. And if I were to be honest, uh, they would say it's not very good, the things that we have heard. And so they say, hey, we're curious to know what you think about it. What's your perspective of what's going on? In fact, they say, we'll be back. And when we come back, we're going to bring some other people with us, and you can explain things to us. You can teach us. That's what's going on. And here's the thing. That's exactly what happens. So they come back another day with more people, and they listen to Paul teach from morning till evening, it says, about the kingdom of God and Jesus. And in the end, a bunch of them don't believe. And we'll talk about that in a second. But it also says that some of them are convinced Consider that just three days in, into being in Rome, in being under house arrest, there are people that come to know about the gospel through this effort. Would you consider this? These are Jews in Rome. They're thousands of miles away from Israel, right? And there's actually already a thriving church in Rome. Paul writes a letter to them uh, earlier. There's already a thriving church there, but somehow God saw it fit for a handful of Jewish folks to find their way into Paul's house while he's on house arrest and to come to believe. And you want to say, what is going on here? Well, you say, you know what? Paul is praying for opportunities to share the gospel, and God provides opportunities for the gospel to be shared. Some of those people who walked into Paul's house that day, they walked in with a bad taste in their mouth about Christianity. But now they were leaving convinced by its truth. Well, let me give you another example. When we read Philemon, one of the prison epistles that Paul wrote, we learn about a man named Onesimus. Onesimus. Onesimus is actually a runaway servant, okay? He's a runaway servant. He belongs to a man named Philemon, right? And so it turns out that Onesimus runs away from work one day. He's running away from his indentured servant, uh, servanthood, and he runs away, and he makes his, his way all the way to Rome, it says, from, from running away. Now, not only does he arrive in Rome, it, happens, it just so happens that he finds his way all the way to Paul's house while he's on house arrest uh, in Rome. Well, obviously, Paul's no idiot. Right? So he sees this as an answer to prayer. He sees this as God opening up the door for him to be able to share the gospel. And so that's what he does. Paul shares the gospel with Onesimus, this runaway servant. And soon enough, it says that Onesimus becomes a Christian. In fact, listen to what Paul says as he writes to Philemon, his owner. He says, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ, I, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus whose father I became in my imprisonment. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. And when you read that, you want to say, what is going on here? I mean, here's Onesimus who's running away from, from Philemon and from the work that he's doing. He lands in Rome. He ends up in Paul's house. 
and he believes the gospel and becomes a child of God. And you want to say, hey, you know what's going on here? Paul is praying for an opportunity to share the gospel, and God provides an opportunity for the gospel to be shared. And he sends even a random stranger to Paul's house, and this stranger now becomes a spiritual son to Paul. Or consider one more example. Remember how we said that Paul spends all day, every day, basically handcuffed to another person? That's basically what he's doing. Well, what that means is that for two years, he basically has an audience to hear the gospel, right? No matter what, there's always going to be someone there that can hear the gospel. Think about it. Every four hours, there's a new person that comes in who's handcuffed now to Paul. And when that happens, you wonder what sort of things these soldiers must have heard as they're standing side by side with Paul. Or what kind of conversations they must have been a part of, or what kind of things they began to believe as they're spending time with the Apostle Paul. It actually reminds me of a story from a pastor named R.C. Sproul, right? R.C. Sproul once said that he was in the 70s, he was teaching a seminary class, right? And he was teaching a seminary class, and it just so happens that President Ford, President Ford was a president during the 70s, President Ford's son happened to be taking a seminary class with R.C. Sproul, right? So uh, Ford's son would come to class, and every time he came to class, two members of the secret service would come with him to class. And the beginning of the semester, what they basically did was they let uh, Ford's son go into class, and they would stand guard at the, the opening of the classroom, at the door, right? Well, a few weeks into class, these guards stopped standing at the, the door, and they started coming into class with Ford's son. And R.C. Sproul said that soon he would find them taking copious notes of all that was being said during class. And so they were writing down all sorts of things. And soon enough, one of those men became a Christian. Well, that's sort of the thing that's happening here in Paul's situation. You see, these men who are not there to hear the gospel can't help but hear the gospel and have their lives changed forever. In fact, listen to how Paul describes it in Philippians. He says this. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. You see, Paul prayed for an opportunity, and God made the most of every opportunity. And as Paul shared the gospel, these soldiers couldn't help but hear the gospel. And not only did it affect the, the soldiers who were handcuffed to him in, those, in that room every four hours, it is says that it affected the entire imperial guard. Listen to what verse 13 says. It says, It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. You know, scholars say that there's probably 9,000 Roman soldiers that belong to the imperial guard. 9,000. In other words, potentially 9,000 men heard about Paul's story, and heard about Jesus and the gospel during Paul's house arrest. And you want to say, you wonder how many of those people came to know Christ? Out of those 9,000 people, and how many of those men maybe told their families or friends? And how many of those families or friends told other people in the community? You wonder, what was that like? What was going on in there? How many of those soldiers went to work that morning not knowing that their lives were about to be completely transformed by what they heard and what they believed that day? Again, once again, Paul prays for an opportunity, 
and God provides an opportunity. He sends soldier after soldier into Paul's life, and soon Paul and the gospel is the talk of the town. Some of my road, can you say, do you know what this shows us? It's really simple. It's not profound. So brace yourself, okay? You and I should pray for opportunities to share the gospel. Because God loves to answer that prayer. God loves to answer that prayer. Why? Because Acts reminds us that this mission isn't about Paul or Peter or you or me. This is Jesus' mission. And so when we pray, we are simply asking to be entered into the story that he's already writing. We're entering into the story that he is already writing. When we pray, we're asking to participate in what he is already doing here on earth. And Acts 28 reminds us that he loves to answer those kind of prayers. In fact, let me give you an example just from my own life. You see, I am not an evangelist, right? I just want to be honest. I am not an evangelist. I don't know how to naturally strike up conversations with people about Jesus. I don't know how to answer questions that people have about Jesus. But about three years ago, I began to regularly pray for opportunities to share the gospel. Because when I took a look at my life, I knew that I loved Jesus, but I knew also that I wasn't really telling anybody about him, if I were to be honest. And so I began to regularly pray, and I actually regularly prayed Colossians 4.3, the verse that we're looking at. I started praying that regularly. And I prayed that God would open up the door for me to be able to share Christ with people. And can I tell you, it was amazing to see him respond. I mean, God literally provided opportunity after opportunity. Soon after I started praying that prayer, I found myself regularly meeting with a non-Christian neighbor of mine. We're good friends. And I started reading through with him the gospel through a book. We started reading together and having conversations. Or I found myself meeting up every other week with a stranger that I met at a, a random party that we were at together, and they wanted to know about Jesus. And so every other week, we would meet together and talk about Christ. Or I found myself having unplanned conversations with strangers, with random strangers at Be Well Cafe, because I steal their internet all the time, and I'm just there, right? And all these unplanned conversations were happening. Or I found myself reconnecting with old college friends that I haven't spoken to in years, but they were curious about Christianity and wanted to know more. Or I even found myself having late-night conversations with extended family about life and Jesus and how those two things connect. Now, I say all of that not at all to boast, right? Not in the least, because remember, I'm an idiot when it comes to evangelism. I don't know what I'm doing. Instead, I want you to hear that I prayed for an opportunity to share the gospel and God provided opportunities, many of them. A simple point of application for you. Savmar Road, what if we committed to praying for opportunities to share the gospel? What if we regularly committed to doing that? And I'm not even just talking theoretically here, or conceptually, this is a good idea. I'm saying, even as we talk about that right now, maybe there's a particular person that comes to your mind a person that you love, a person that you know doesn't know Jesus, what if you committed to regularly praying for opportunities to, to share this great gospel with that person? Or maybe you're like me, right, and you find yourself hardly telling anyone about Jesus. What if you started praying that God would regularly open up opportunities for you to be able to declare the mysteries of Christ?
What if you did that? You see, Acts is telling us that Jesus' ministry on earth isn't finished. Right? The gospel is still traveling to the ends of the earth. And a simple way that you and I can be a part of what Jesus is doing is by praying. Praying for opportunities to be able to share this good news. That's the first point. God is continuing his mission. And continuing God's mission means praying for opportunities to share the gospel. Our final point for this morning is this. Continuing God's mission also means sharing the gospel. Continuing God's mission, it also means actually sharing the gospel. Look again at verse 23. It says, When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he, that's Paul, expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Now jump down to verse 30 and 31. It says, he, that's Paul again, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. One passage, two situations, do you notice a pattern between both? Whether it's meeting with the Jewish leaders in verse 23 and 24, or we're talking about anybody who came to see Paul during that two-year time period, what was Paul doing? He was telling them about Jesus. Paul was sharing the gospel. He was proclaiming the kingdom. He was pointing people to Jesus through the law of Moses and through the prophets. And you see, that should not surprise us at all. Because this is not just what we read in Acts 28. In fact, this is what we've been continually reading all throughout the book of Acts. This has been the pattern all throughout Acts. Whether it's, it's Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, or, or, or Stephen's speech before being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, or maybe it's Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch where they read the scriptures together in Acts chapter 8, or it's Paul sharing the gospel with the, the jailer in Acts chapter 16, or remember Apollos, he was preaching boldly about Jesus in Acts chapter 18. This is what we have seen over and over again within Acts, that Jesus continued his ministry here on earth, and he did so by always having the gospel being shared. And you see, that's not random. It's not just a coincidence. It's not even just a good strategy. This is how you get them. There's a reason for this. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, in verse 16, it says this. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Do you know what that means? Do you know what Paul's saying? Essentially this, that no one has ever become a Christian without believing the gospel. And no one ever will. No one will ever become a Christian without believing the gospel, and no one ever will. If we want to see people come to know Jesus and believe, believe in Christ, one of the gospel must be shared. This is how God designed it. That people will be saved and this world will be transformed as the gospel is shared and believed. It was true in Acts, and it continues to be true today as well. And I think that's really important for us to remember. Because every once in a while, we'll say things or we'll believe things like, you know, we should preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, we should use words. We'll say that. 
Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Now, I, I get the heart of why people are saying that, but I want to say maybe the saying isn't that helpful. Because you see, no one will ever become a Christian simply because we're nice to them or we do good things for them. No one will ever become a Christian that way. Like, we should do photo shoots like our GCMs do. That's wonderful. But no one will become a Christian simply because we do a photo shoot for them. Or we should feed the hungry. God tells us to do that. We should wonderfully do that. But no one will come to know Jesus simply because we give them bread. No, they, they, they need to hear the gospel. Because you see, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And hear this. The gospel is actually good news. It's good news. It's the good news about King Jesus. That Jesus is the true king. The true king of the world. He's the king above all kings. That unlike Caesar, our king doesn't take lives. No, instead he has laid down his life for rebellious sinners like us. That our king, though he is God, he comes into this world in the form of a servant. That our king, though he had done nothing wrong, he was actually placed onto a cross and treated like a criminal for the sins that you and I committed. That our king, though we wanted nothing to do with him and we cared about ourselves more than we cared about him, he pursued us with a relentless love. This is our king, Seven Mile Road. This is the king that we worship. And this king has come to establish his kingdom. And can I say, his kingdom is what our hearts are yearning for. If you're here this morning, your heart has yearnings. If you're here this morning and you don't believe in Christ, your heart still has yearnings. And I want to say the kingdom that Jesus is establishing is the very thing that your hearts are yearning for. You see, this kingdom is the reversal of all that is broken and messed up in this world. It's an upside-down kingdom where if you humble yourself, Jesus says you will be exalted. It's an inside-out kingdom where being righteous is about the heart and not just simply the behavior. It's a kingdom where sinful people can be made righteous and self-righteous people are called sinners. It's a kingdom that cares for the marginalized and the oppressed. It's a kingdom where death and tears will finally come to an end. It will finally come to an end. It's a kingdom that's already here, and it's a kingdom that's still coming. Seven Mile Road, that's really good news. People are dying to hear that kind of news. People need to hear that news. And that's why preaching the gospel requires us to tell people about that good news. They want to hear it. They need to hear it. We want to hear it. And we're glad that people told us. And that's why Paul and everyone else in Acts always preach the gospel. And that's why you and I are being called to do the same. But Acts 28 wants us to be clear of one more thing. You see, not everyone who hears this good news will hear it as good news. Not everyone who hears this good news will hear it as good news. Look back to verse 24. So Paul's spending all day and nights sharing the gospel with the Jewish leaders and consider what happens. It says, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. 
and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So what just happened? Remember, we just read that Paul spent morning till evening sharing the gospel. So those Jewish leaders and their friends were there. They heard the gospel being preached for many hours. And it says that many of them refused to believe. And what does Paul do? He responds by citing this chapter Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 6, 9, and 10. This passage is quoted about six times in the New Testament. And each time it's quoted, it's referring to those who hear the gospel but reject it. And you see, that's exactly what happens to some here in Acts 28. They hear, but they're not hearing. I mean, they see, but they were not seeing. Why? Because their hearts are already hardened. In their hearts, they already know what they believe. They don't need any more truth. Or their eyes are already shut. In their minds, they already see what truth is. They didn't need to be shown something else. And so no matter how much teaching or convincing Paul did that day, Jesus and the kingdom sounded anything like but it sounded like anything but good news. But here's the thing. It's not just true for the Jews in that room. That still happens today. Some of my wrote, it's, it's really important for us to remember that something is always happening when the gospel is being proclaimed. Something is always happening. One person said it this way, that the, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The same sun that shines down can melt the ice and harden the clay. That's true of the gospel as well. Every time the gospel is preached, it will elicit a response. We will never hear it and remain neutral. And so can I say to you this morning, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I hope that you hear that there is no way to walk away from the gospel with neutrality. That even as you hear this morning the good news about Jesus and his kingdom, there are only two options. Either you're hearing and you're drawing nearer to Jesus, or you're hearing and you become more hardened to the gospel. There is no third choice. Can I say, our genuine prayer for you this morning is that as you're hearing about King Jesus and as you're hearing about this kingdom that he's establishing, that you would see with your eyes and that you would hear with your ears and understand with your hearts just how good this good news is. And that you would be convinced and believe the gospel today. That's our prayer for you. But Seven Mile Road, Acts 28 is also a great reminder that as we share this gospel with people, rejection is always a possibility. Listen to what one author says. He says this, so if you're going to talk to people about Jesus, you are going to get hurt. It's going to sever some relationships, not every time, and depending on our circumstances and our experiences will vary, but we will face rejection enough times to give us second thoughts. You see, if we share the gospel, there will always be a possibility of us being rejected. And if it happens enough, we may start to even consider whether we should be doing this. And it can lead us to have great fears, like fears like, hey, what if they say no? Or what if I don't know what to say? Or what if it destroys a relationship that we have? Those are good questions and understandable fears. So the question is, how do we address those fears, these legitimate fears that we have? Well, Paul gives us a clue in Romans. Listen to him speak about his Jewish brothers and sisters. This is what he says in Romans 9. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit 
that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. Or look at Romans chapter 10. He says this, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. You see, do you know why Paul teaches the gospel, shares the gospel with the Jews? Do you know why he allows himself to face rejection over and over again? Because he says, I can't begin to explain the love that I have for these people. Them not knowing Jesus brings anguish and sorrow into my heart, Paul says. He says, in fact, if it were, if it were even possible, I would give up my own salvation if it meant that them being saved. Seven mile road, that's, that's really good for us to consider. Because if the possibility of rejection is keeping us from sharing the gospel, maybe it's not that we have too many fears, but instead that we don't have enough love. If the possibility of rejection is keeping us from sharing the gospel, maybe it's not that we have too many fears, but maybe it's that we don't have enough love. Now, I realized lately that the reason why I shy away from having hard conversations with people is because I actually love myself more than I love them. That's why I do that. Well, if you can relate, maybe one way we can prepare ourselves for rejection, because we will be rejected, is to pray that we would love others more than we love ourselves. That we would love others so much that we would be willing to give up comforts and pride and safety for the salvation of others. Because Seven Mile Road, isn't that what Jesus did for us? We should pray that God would make us more like Jesus. Remember, continuing God's mission means sharing the gospel. So I want to leave us with just this. You see, Acts 28 leaves us with a wonderful picture that should be a real encouragement to us. This is what it says in verse 30. It says, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Consider that picture for a moment, right? Here is Paul. He is under house arrest. He just got rejected by a bunch of Jewish leaders. And yet it says that the gospel was unhindered. In fact, in the Greek, that's the last word in the book of Acts, unhindered. What a great picture. Paul is in chains, but the gospel was not. Right? Paul is in chains, but the gospel is not. That should be a real encouragement to us because it reminds us that this mission is not ultimately about you or me or Paul or Peter. It really is about Jesus. That irrespective of our failures or our unwillingness or the stumbling blocks that we reject or the uh, stumbling blocks that we face, the rejection that we face, Jesus promises to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And would you consider for a moment all that he has already done throughout the history of the world? You see, in AD 42, the gospel is brought to Egypt through Mark. In AD 52, India receives the gospel through the, through the apostle Thomas. In AD 174, the first Christians are reported in modern-day Austria. In AD 280, the first group of churches start emerging in Italy. In AD 350, nearly 32 million Christians would inhabit the Roman Empire. In AD 432, St. Patrick would share the gospel to Ireland. In AD 635, the first Christian missionaries arrive in China. In AD 900, missionaries first stepped foot in Norway. By 1498, Kenya's first Christians were baptized. From 1555 to 1562, 2,000 churches were planted in France. 
1890, Charles Spurgeon had helped plant 200 churches in Great Britain. By 1985, after 25 years of church planting, Christians in South Korea grew to over 6.5 million people. And we would say, and in 2019, he has gathered a couple of hundred people here in Northeast Philly. And so we would say, Seven Mile Road, may Acts 28 be a wonderful reminder to you of all that God has done throughout history. And yet, we remember that the mission is not complete. Let's pray for opportunities, let's share the gospel, and let's be a part of what Jesus continues to do here on earth. Let's pray.